It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who followed very closely FDA Verb Pack and ACIP meetings, and even those who didn't follow super closely, but maybe at least read the news about it. My I don't name, know. I can't even spell verb pack. Maybe I should just put down my headset now. Yeah, yeah. You get lost if you can't spell <laughs> verb pack. <laughs> it's like the commercial. He doesn't even know how to spell Dow Jones. I don't know how to spell HPV. <laughs> uh, my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we have a great show for you. We're actually going to talk about the flu. Mm -hmm. For once. Because influenza is still a virus. And we still can prevent it with a vaccine. And so it's really important right now to get people remembering those facts and to get out and get their flu shots. Um, Like last year, I'm going to repeat the uh, advice that you should get your flu shot before you buy your Halloween candy. Mm -hmm. I've been saying that a lot lately. I've done a few interviews and such. And so flu before boo is is something I've been saying a lot. And it's catchy. Everybody who hears it loves it. So just remember that flu before boo, which means to get your flu shot, not to get the flu before boo, meaning Halloween, not like your significant other. Yes. Yes, because it's always if you're ta- if boo is your significant other and flu is just the flu, it's always boo before flu. Yeah. Okay. Which means you should get your flu shot so your boo doesn't get the flu. I it's it's clear as inception. Good job. Fabulous. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, L.J. Tan from Immunization Action Coalition because he has all of the correct prognostications about everything that we need to know about the flu for the future. That's a joke. He hates prognosticating. <laughs> um, before I launch into my whole around the web, I want to say a special thank you to Emmy, who did a fundraiser for us in the community A Community Thrives Challenge on Mighty Cause. Uh, she raised her goal was five hundred dollars. She raised five hundred and eighty-five dollars, and she did it in memory of her sister. I just want to read this story because it's really, you know, why we're all here right now. So she says, at nine years old, my sister Marcy contracted a now vaccine-preventable disease that caused permanent challenges living as an adult. She hoped to be one of those very first to receive the COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it became available because she understood the trajectory of someone's life unprotected from a virulent virus. But last August, she succumbed to a sudden massive stroke. When I learned in the hospital that she had tested positive for COVID antibodies, it became clear that at some point she had contracted a second insidious virus in her life, one that could have been prevented had the vaccine been available then. As as vaccine refusal and COVID cases are on the rise in all 50 states, won't you please donate to Voices for Vaccines, a national nonprofit that helps raise social awareness and immunization rates. 
my sister's tragic my sister's story is tragic but no more tragic than so many who refuse a life-saving vaccine do it for yourself an elder a neighbor's child and an immunocompromised family member as a vaccine advocate marcy would thank you and so i just wanted to pay a little tribute to marcy and to thank emmy for uh raising some money for voices for vaccines Emmy, thank you so much, and we're so sorry for your loss. That was extremely touching, and we're so thankful. Absolutely. In a similar vein, my Around the Web is <laughs> almost just as heavy. Uh, one of the things I sort of want to talk about is a trend I've been noticing on social media, this sort of um, schadenfreude trend where people who were unvaccinated, and maybe loudly so, have been dying from COVID vac from COVID nineteen, and a lot of their stories are told in the national media or in local media. Sometimes people just pick them up from their Facebook posts. Maybe they posted something or had one of those frames that said something like "unafraid," "unmasked," "unvaccinated," and then they end up in the hospital. And you can kind of follow along through their posts as they eventually die. And uh, one of the trends of this is not that we're reporting on this because their stories are important, but it's sort of the way that it's being framed for some people who are saying things like, if you don't get vaccinated, you shouldn't get to be on a ventilator. Or if you don't get vaccinated, you shouldn't go to the hospital. And I completely understand that sentiment, but I kind of wanted to bring it up because... I feel as though our health care really does exist even for people who make poor choices. Mm-hmm. And that death or, you know, not getting a ventilator is really a cruel punishment for falling prey to misinformation. And I wanted to bring that up because I wanted to sort of ask you, Nathan, as someone who works obviously with children who don't Mm -hmm. get choices, right? Sort of what your take on this is um, on the hospital side. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that, as you said, I think there is some value in talking about those stories and making those stories known because it is worthwhile saying, hey, this is a person who thought they were invulnerable and, and wouldn't be at least to COVID, though COVID wouldn't hurt them this much. This was a person who didn't get immunized, who was very adamant about that, and and look what happened. And I think that that's something that needs to be told. That's a cautionary tale. I think when you start getting into talking about, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, sometimes we see people, you know, mocking that situation or saying they deserved it or something like that. And that's not really true just because of how much of this i mean we talk about when we talk about um vaccine hesitancy and we talk about anti-vaxxers we do talk about how you know the hesitant are often misled by uh bad information and they really do deserve our compassion but even those that are outwardly spreading misinformation they got duped at some point right and yes there's some level of choice in a lot of them but when we talk about these worst outcomes, 
uh, we have to be careful about how we frame, how we talk about people that have um, died. And when it comes to who do we care for in the medical system, we care for everyone. Uh, I'm part of a practice that sees unvaccinated kids. We don't turn them away. Uh, it's uh, important to us that everybody gets good medical care, even if they don't make uh, the best choices for their children. Um, that's what part of being in the medical system is, uh, is taking care of people. Nearly everything that we um, take care of, you know, there's modifiable factors, but we take care of everybody. That's important because not everything <laughs> is modifiable. And so there's a lot of, and even if it was something that was a choice, that's still a person that deserves care. We, it's not up to us to decide that they don't deserve care. And so I agree. I want everybody to be compassionate when it comes to uh, some of the worst outcomes uh, and understanding of that. Yes, I understand the sentiment of COVID fatigue and frustration. And, and yes, I agree that people who choose to not be vaccinated and uh, are spreading misinformation are doing something very bad. But I also think that we need to be understanding the fact that everybody, when they're faced with some of these worst outcomes, deserves care. Part of what I think about, too, when I think about these folks who are ending up in the hospital is that part of what's going on is that we are living in still uncertain and scary times. And for some people, it's the most uncertain time of their lives. Um, some of us have lived through all sorts of trauma and tragedy and have, you know, have um, developed coping mechanisms that are okay. But some people genuinely turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms, which includes a belief system that makes a person think that they have enough inner fortitude or strength or moral uprightness to take care of a virus that they can do it through methods like eating certain foods or they can do it through methods like exercising or even just being in a particular kind of community. I know this can happen particularly in, in smaller communities where there's a feeling that I, I know everybody and we're all protected and, and it's okay. And f part of that is sort of feeling as though I'm going to be unafraid because I know I'm good and doing right things and I don't want to do these outside interventions that would make me admit that I'm a vulnerable, mortal human being living in unpredictable times. I'd rather believe that I have control over how vulnerable I am, that I am a person who has a sort of guarantee of how long I can live, and that the times don't have to be predicted unpredictable that I can choose my own future and the course of my own life and so I know that's a ton of words I just said about vaccine hesitancy but I think that's where 
a lot of the loudness comes from. A lot of the, I'm unafraid, I'm unmasked, I'm unvaccinated, I don't have to get a vaccine, I have an immune system. All of these things sort of play into where is the locus of control. And when you put a vaccine into your arm that's saying, hey, I recognize I, I actually need help to have any amount of control over this virus. And I think that actually makes some people feel more vulnerable. I worry that when we have these schadenfreude moments, and it is hard not to have them, to be really, really frank. It's hard not to be like, oh, see, look, Mr. Loudmouth DJ died, and, and he deserved it. It's hard not to think that way. But when we have those moments, I, I worry that rather than inviting people in to see that the way to have control with your body over a virus is through science, is through shared responsibility over it rather than personal responsibility, that we are making it harder for those people to reconsider their perspectives. And that's important not just for them, but for all of us. And just one last thing that I really want to get your feedback on, Nathan, is that I can't imagine how frustrating it is right now to be, for example, my friend Michelle, who works in a large urban hospital on what is usually a med floor and has and was a COVID floor for a long time. They closed all of the, the COVID cases. They were a med floor again. And now here they are, a COVID floor again. I can't imagine how tiring, exhausting, frustrating, angering it is to be in that space and have people still refusing vaccination. And I'm, I'm not quite sure how to support those medical heroes who are still in the thick of it when they don't need to be. So, you know, I don't think that there's one particular best way to support healthcare workers doing this. Just understand that we're all under a lot of stress and strain. This is not only very disruptive in terms of how it's how much we have to work and how much we have to rearrange things, but it's also very wearing on us uh, in terms of trying to a navigate and debunk and provide good information in the face of misinformation, but also facing things like people protesting vaccines outside of your or masks requirements and stuff like that, basically protesting healthcare, which is really at the heart of it, what it is. Um, and so that's extremely difficult. Um, and I want to kind of, this was not what my around the web was going to be, but there is a fantastic article by a friend of mine, Dr. Daniel Summers, who is a pediatrician in Massachusetts. I think he publishes on, I believe it's called Arc Digital. And the title of it, if I recall correctly, is, is simply, I am so tired. Uh, and so look for that. Uh, it basically describes what I have been saying, and it's worth a read. It's certainly something that every healthcare worker can connect with. I, as an outpatient pediatrician, am probably experiencing on the lower end 
of the fatigue and frustration that um, my colleagues are experiencing when they're doing inpatient or intensive care or adult work or that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, uh, we feel that fatigue. We feel that uh, difficulty in um, navigating this new environment. So just be thoughtful. Know that your friends can, you, that your healthcare worker friends could use your support. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And your when you access healthcare, you know, being a little, mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to be nice to your doctors and nurses when you go in for care because a lot of times it's when you're not feeling well. Mm -hmm. But any amount of empathy you can summon in those moments is probably very appreciated. We absolutely appreciate it. So this uh, episode so far is heavier than uh, last night's Ted Lasso. So I'm going to pivot to my around the web. Pivot! Uh, which is, uh, I, you know, I am not honestly the world's biggest family guy uh, expert or fan. Honestly, it's okay. Yeah. But uh, I do appreciate this PSA that uh, they've put out. Uh, I believe that... Uh, you know, Seth MacFarlane, in um, conjunction with the Ad Council, put out this nice little PSA that goes through basically as Stewie and I think the dog's name is Brian do like the interspace treatment where they go into Peter's veins and blood vessels and, and talk about how a vaccine works. And it's really quite fun. Uh, so look for that. Look for Family Guy COVID vaccine PSA. But I also want to point out that what do you think the Newsweek headline? was for uh when when they covered this particular psa karen oh i just don't have any idea <laughs> it is it is vaccine skeptics outraged by family guy psa oh, for goodness like, sake really why <laughs> no no why like, here's this great psa and they just take a couple of anti-vaxxers tweets and i mean folks Seth MacFarlane has been like pro-vaccine for a long time. He's always dunking on anti-vaxxers. This isn't new. <laughs> People are like, I'm so disappointed in this. And I'm like, where have you been? They've, he's been doing this for a long time. So anyway, check that out. It'll, it's, it's a little bit of levity uh, in, in these difficult times. Yeah, I, I did see that Family Guy did a PSA and I am going to, try to remember to put it in the show notes. It is, if I forget, if, by the way, audience, if I ever forget mm -hmm. to put something in the show notes, you're looking at it and you're like, where is thus and such in the show notes? Just email me at, you know, info at voicesforvaccines.org and say, you forgot the blah -de blah -de blah in the show notes. I will add them in and probably email you back with what I forgot to put in there. But I will, I, I'm going to put that in the show notes. I haven't seen the PSA yet. I am not a Family Guy fan. I apologize for that. Um, but I do appreciate Seth, Seth MacFarlane. And I, I did see him in the Emmys, by the way. I don't know if you saw. Mm -hmm. He stood up and he said, this is terrible. Why are we all crowded together here <laughs> in this enclosed space? 
this is awful. <laughs> they lied to us. <laughs> they said there would be fresh air. There isn't. There's a roof above us. And I was like, thank you for saying something. Because I was watching this being like, well, that is a nice, tidy little enclosed space. Yep. Unnecessarily. And we didn't win our Emmy for the podcast. So it was a disappointing night all around. Well, we're not a TV show, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that means what? We can't win an Emmy? How do you, I win? Think How do you win something? I think you have to be a TV show. Fine. Fine. I know you're going for your That's EGOT. That's our next step. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, all right, fantastic. When we come back, we're going to talk to LJ Tan from the Immunization Action Coalition uh, on the topic. Now that we've got COVID, what is flu going to do? It's going to be great. It's going to be Emmy Award winning material. Stay tuned. We no, the only vaccine people winning Emmy Awards are apparently Del Big Tree. So okay, jeez. Oh, <laughs> See, you just brought it back down. We had it up. We were all, we had some fun and you brought it back down. We are joined now by LJ Tan, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Immunization Action Coalition. He also runs the Adult Immunization and Influenza Summit. I know I got those that name wrong. And he is a my favorite go-to for all things influenza. Welcome, LJ. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Nathan, for being here, uh, for letting me be here, excuse me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that we all care deeply about, right? Flu. It is our pleasure. Uh, before we get into flu, would you be able to break down for us the FDA Advisory Committee's decision to not okay universal boosters for COVID vaccines? What's what's up with that? Yeah, um, and so I got to be very, very gentle here. I, I think, <laughs> I think there was a little bit of uh, jockeying there because I think some of the lanes between what the FDA does and what the ACIP does was a little blurred yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, sorry, on Friday. Um, you know, um, you know, I think the, the jurisdiction of FDA is talk about is to think about whether something is safe and efficacious uh, and uh, and then how it, the vaccine gets used once it's determined to be safe and efficacious is the ACIP domain. Right. And I think I think the FDA yesterday, uh, oh, sorry, Friday uh, kind of went into a um, it, the, the lane, the lanes got a little fuzzy. And so what they did was they initially had a question that was about 16 and older getting a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, specifically the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. Uh, and um, that the VRPAC did not approve that. They, they, had, uh, they had majority no votes and they had two uh, positive votes. Um, and, uh, and so they revised the question uh, to, to basically focus in on the emergency use authorizations for 65 and older and people with high risk. And that was approved unanimously. So right now, sitting in front of the FDA for their final decision process, the FDA does not have to listen to the VRPAC, um, you know, they, but the VRPAC is an expert panel that gives them advice. Um, is this decision as to whether to uh, uh, allow the, the emergency use uh, uh, authorization to now cover a third dose for 65 and older and for those at high risk? That will then go to the ACIP. And then the ACIP now kind of has a, has a more restricted road to work with because now they've got this 65 and older and high risk and hopefully the ACIP can work within the high risk population 
category to kind of decide what that really means. My 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 hope is that healthcare workers will be considered someone that's at high risk and and will be able to receive that third dose. So so that's just some of my personal opinions. I'm not reflecting opinions of IAC or the summit that I obviously co-chair, but uh, that's kind of where they are right now, Nathan. And and I have to say it's um one of my concerns about this process what happened on Friday is you know, by kind of backing off from that original question that they had to think about, um, they I'm hoping that people don't assume that it's because the vaccines are not safe and right. efficacious for 16 and older, because they absolutely are, right? So, so I think that's that that blurring of the lanes there. So, mm -hmm. so sorry to what ramble, but the, it, was a, it was a good it was a good question. Do you have a sense of the timeline then of those additional decisions? Like, um, you know, not that I'm thinking of any particular healthcare worker, but getting healthcare workers <laughs> the green light to get their their boosters. So the ACIP is scheduled to meet this Thursday, sure. Wednesday and Thursday. Okay. Uh, and so I think they will probably come to some vote on some recommendation on what that population is. Okay. And then I think uh, that's assuming, of course, that FDA issues the authorization because they have to issue that authorization because, remember, they went back to the EUA. Sure. Uh, so we're looking for that today and tomorrow. And then ACIP meets Wednesday, Thursday. And if they issue a recommendation, I think, um, again, speculation here, right, Nathan, is this idea that if they do include healthcare workers, then Friday would be the earliest. Uh, so end of this week. Thank you for that really lovely and um, abbreviated explanation. It was really great. Uh, going to flu now. So last year we saw very little flu in the Northern Hemisphere. And there are those people who think that flu cases were just recorded as COVID cases so that normal flu deaths were actually recorded as COVID deaths. These are the people who think that we're trying to fake COVID, right? Um, so we know that's not the case. So what exactly was the scenario last season that there was so little influenza circulating? Yeah, so to to, pref to to kind of preface with your, you know, to address your point uh, there, Karen, is that we also saw very dramatic reductions in other respiratory pathogens as well, not just flu, right? So 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 much for that conspiracy theory. And I, and I think the reason we saw dramatic reductions in respiratory pathogens, including flu, was because of the fact that we had a COVID pandemic and that we were all, you know, in a fairly, uh, we were fairly compliant with the shelter-in-place instructions, right? So many of us were, were wearing masks, many of us were, you know, by, by, by mandate or by regulation, were not in public places. So we, we and we were practicing good hand hygiene, and as a result, I think uh, we really cut down the transmission of influenza as well as other respiratory pathogens. We, we know that, that we know that if we can do that kind of masking, uh, we, will, we will cut down transmission. And so that's why we saw almost no flu last year. Reminding us all, we did see flu. We even had one pediatric death last season, but, but, we, but we, we, did, we saw much reduced levels of influenza because of those dramatic uh, lockdown conditions that we, we had. We know that that's not going to be true this upcoming flu season, and and in fact, with, with the re, with the uh, with the resumption of, you know, with the with the reduction in our in our hand hygiene and our masking and our and our sheltering in place, we're already beginning to see resurgence of the other respiratory pathogens. Like for example, RSV has been in the news recently because it surged. Uh, and, and search fairly seriously. Uh, and that's an indication to us that these respiratory pathogens, including flu, will be back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I am loaded with respiratory illness. I'm having the uh, busiest winter uh, I've had in a long time right now. <laughs> so we're at the point oh. where, well, the other thing I think is interesting is people try to make that argument that um, 
that, that, oh, we're misdiagnosing COVID as flu or that we didn't know or that we were not diagnosing flu last winter. But I still, because I know that there are risk groups that are candidates for Tamiflu, if somebody is in those risk groups and they're febrile and have respiratory symptoms, I'm going to offer them a flu. I'm going to get a flu test on them. Uh, so, because I want to know if I'm mm-hmm. going to start Tamiflu. Exactly. That didn't change. My protocols for that didn't change. And yet I saw virtually no flu. Uh, over the winter. So now we're at the point where uh, we're going to be encouraging the public to get their flu shots. What I've been saying, you know, I have no earthly idea what this flu season is going to look like, when it's going to start, when it's going to end. Are we going to see an early flu season? What do you think? Is there any way to predict what it's going to look like this season or when it's going to be? Great question. Great question, Nathan. I wish I had a crystal ball. And, you know, um, Dr. Bill Schaffner likes to say when you've seen one flu season, you've seen one flu season. I think it's true even uh, after uh, COVID-19, you know, we're, uh, during COVID-19. It's, it's, we don't know. We really don't know. There are some suggestions um, that, uh, that we might see a little bit more of a severe flu season. And part of it has to do with the fact that uh, we went through all of last season without uh, what I like to use the term environmental boosting because, you know, you get this exposure to the pathogens because they are circulating. And that kind of serves in addition to the vaccine, a kind of a, like a boosting effect to the vaccination process. Um, but we didn't see any of that exposure last flu season. So I think maybe there's going to be less immunity in this upcoming uh, flu season in the population in general. So we, we could see a slightly more severe flu season. But, you know, it's it's really hard to predict. It's really, really hard to predict flu. But now I'm starting to see kind of in the news the what I consider to be a pretty exciting possibility of an mRNA flu vaccine. I realize that's not going to be a this season thing, mm-hmm. obviously. But is that really something? And I think I saw like a combo COVID uh, flu and maybe RSV vaccine mentioned in the news. Is, are these coming and are these big game changers? They, they seem like they could so, be. So the combo vaccines could be huge game changers, um, but I think we're really too early to be talking about combo vaccines. I don't think we can even talk about a combo co- uh, flu COVID-19 vaccine yet. Uh, I'm sh- of course, you can you can bet that, that the manufacturers are looking into that. So let's just focus on the technology itself and potentially its benefit for flu vaccine. And I think it's, it's obvious that the mRNA platform has shown because of COVID-19 to be an incredible, um, incredibly efficient platform at, at activating the immune response. That being said, I think you ha- we have to kind of keep in mind the design of the vaccine, right? So with mRNA vaccines, I think what we're looking here with the COVID-19 is that we have the spike protein, we took the, we took that sequence, we put it in the mRNA platform, and we generated a spike protein that was then that the, the immune response reacted against. We still have to keep in mind with flu vaccine, we're still talking about four different strains of flu, of viruses. So the question with the mRNA platforms, are we still are we going to look for that one universal antigen? That will replace all four, or are we going to do four separate mRNAs and uh, mRNA, you know, inserts, and then essentially recreate the same flu vaccine, but with the mRNA platform? So I think they're looking at all of that, and then if you do that, then you're talking actually four mRNA vaccines. If you think about, you know, what I just said, um, and is then is there interference then, right? So I think. So I think all those, all that work is going to have to be done. Um, that's why we have clinical trials. Um, I think, I think, I, I have a lot of hope that we will get a much better flu vaccine as we continue to investigate some of not just the mRNA technologies, but some of the other new technologies with virus-like particles or the nanovirus-like particles that we've been seeing that have been used for COVID-19. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to continue to see improvements in our flu vaccines. But that being said, that's down the road. We still have all our trials. The vaccines we have today. They work. Yeah. We need to be using them. 
Let's talk about those vaccines just so everybody's aware of the recommendations. So as far as uh, we want to hear from you, as far as when should you get your flu shot and does it matter when you got your COVID shot or are getting your COVID shot for getting your flu shot? So the great news, unlike last time, last year, when we had that two-week interval between the COVID-19 vaccine and the uh, flu vaccine, is that CDC has essentially said, after watching COVID-19 vaccinations, we know hundreds of millions of doses given, uh, you know, in the, in the United States, you know, we, we have now realized that these vaccines are really, really safe. Uh, we, we can now say that you can administer or co-administer with the COVID-19 vaccines um, your other vaccines. So in other words, you can give flu as well as COVID-19 vaccines at the same clinical visit. Um, you know, maybe thinking again, there are guidance as to how to do that. Uh, a lot of you are experts on this, but for example, one in one arm, one in the other arm or separated uh, on the same arm by, by a certain amount of distance. And there's a lot of SCDC guidance out there for this process. But the big picture is yes, um, you know, you can now get your COVID-19 vaccine and your flu vaccine at the same visit. I like to say to your folks, you know, you come in for flu vaccine, you're not done yet. Have you considered COVID-19? If you come in for COVID-19, you're not done yet. Have you thought of flu? So that's kind of what I what I would put out there. So absolutely both are now, um, you can give both at the same time. I want to travel back in time a little bit um, to our mRNA discussion with the flu. Because I, I always ask you, I shouldn't say always, about once every two or three years, I ask you the same question as they're trying to develop new vaccines. And it's based on a talk I heard from Dr. Michael Osterholm, who said basically, and I'm going to get this all wrong because I have a master's degree in English, but basically that when, when we're looking at flu vaccines, we tend to target the wrong part of the pathogen um, and we end up making flu vaccines that are less effective because there's a different part that really is the one that can do the immune stuff and evade our immune system. So my question about mRNA is if we're making spike proteins based on the flu virus, are we, are we looking at the wrong part of the virus to target as far as immune system responses? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. I think I think you know there's a fundamental understanding of immunology that's kind of required to, to address that. I think uh, the immune system looks at the virus, and there are proteins on the outside of the virus that the immune system looks at, and that's what they they generate the you know the antibodies against and the memory cells against, right? So, so that's what happens. So with regards to when you said the spike protein, the spike protein is for COVID-19. So with the coronaviruses, that spike protein is a very clear target for the immune response, and it, it sticks out there. It's so when we use the spike protein to generate the immune to generate the vaccine, we get this incredible great response against that spike protein. And as it turns out, it's enough right now um, to to take to to take that virus out. It, it, our immune system reacts really well, and we get a nice uh, vaccinated immune response to against COVID-19. With flu, and this is what, uh, you know, when you talk about Mike and, and doc, Dr. Holsterholm's comments is, is that, you know, so with flu, what we do is we look at a protein, uh, essentially, um, you know, looking at two proteins on the surface of the virus, uh, the hemagglutinin and the neuromidase proteins. So those are the two proteins that are on the surface of the flu virus that we know the immune response reacts to, but we don't 
it's not the most efficient response. And then that, I think, is what uh, Mike was talking about when he said this idea that it's not the best protein. Obviously, any protein that we can get an immune response to and we can generate that creates a vaccine. So it's, it's good. It's good enough, especially, you know, considering the, the multiple benefits of flu vaccines in terms of preventing infection, preventing hospitalizations, preventing visits to the emergency department and so on and so forth. Right. So so it's a good vaccine. But I think the point here is, can we find a protein on the flu virus that is better? Better by what standards? So better in the sense that it, it cross reacts across all the different strains of flu. So we don't have to do these four strains every single year. Can we just do one thing like the COVID-19, right? Like the COVID-19 spike protein. Is there a, a spike protein, quote unquote, uh, uh, analog on the flu virus that we can just use for one, you know, just use that one protein and we'll get a response across all the different strains. So is that's better, obviously, right? Or is it better if we can get a, we can do, we have to do multiples but we can do a much longer duration of response, right? So those are the things I think he's talking about when he says we, we've got to be looking for that better protein. And is there a better protein? So I think a lot of the manufacturers are looking for that protein. You will hear proteins like the M1 protein, which is a more integral protein that's inside the membrane of the virus. But it's um, but that's but those are things that uh, that people are looking at. But right now we have not been able to find that better protein yet. So, but stay tuned, right? Maybe the mRNA platform uh, will be able to give us a way to kind of, you know, take take something that's not been working with previous technology, and maybe with the mRNA platform it will work. Who knows? But but that's why science is so beautiful. It it sure is. Thank you for that. I just always love that. Um explanation every time you give it to me um, and I, I try to remember it for longer and longer um, and so maybe it'll be four years um, before I ask again. <laughs> I have one last question for you before we let you go and this is maybe a little bit fluffier but you know if you have a friend who's generally hesitant against a COVID-19 vaccine and now that's bleeding over to a flu vaccine and you think you can only talk them into getting one shot how do you pick oh one? boy karen that's a really tough question you you gotta pick both <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> you gotta do both you really do but if you're gonna you're gonna like put my head on the chopping block and getting violent here and saying you know pick one right um so so this is what i would say right now i would say you need to you you, you need to go and get if you haven't had COVID 19 vaccination you need to go get the COVID 19 vaccine we're in the middle of a pandemic. If you're one of those 60 million plus unvaccinated people, you're transmitting virus. You have a risk of getting sick yourself. Uh, I think all those risks, and if to get us out of this pandemic, we need to get you COVID-19 vaccination. But boy, that's a tough one, man. Uh, that's a real tough one, Karen. Because, uh, you know, I don't want someone going out there and saying, LJ said, get the COVID-19 vaccine over flu, and then they get flu and end up suffering, right? So... Yeah, I'm still here. So I don't want that to happen. You know, I just I, I so so I'm going to say that, but then come back and say, but you really got to get both, especially with <laughs> hospitals as loaded as they are right now. You don't want to try to get a hospital room for flu in the middle of a covid pandemic. And, you know, if you can prevent it through a vaccine, do that. Yeah, we can if we can, you know, both of these are not vaccine preventable diseases. So it's on us. If we do not do this right, then we're, we're going to get that surge 
issue that you just mentioned, Karen. And, you know, I let you talk me into giving an answer. In most circumstances, Karen, if it wasn't you, I would have totally bagged off that question. <laughs> it's true. And I agree with you. You know, if you can try to talk to them generally about their vaccine hesitancy so that you can get them to get both. How's that for making you feel better? Okay. I love it. I love it. Thank well, you. Well, LJ, it's always wonderful to talk to you. Um, I always love having you on the podcast and actually just speaking to you whenever I can, which is why I'm always emailing you being like, hey, we should have another phone call. Um, love it. <laughs> I'm glad to share this conversation with everyone at home too. Um, so thank you for coming, LJ. Oh, thank you, Karen. And again, if, if I raised more questions than I answered, I'm always available to, to answer these, you know, to you directly by email, whatever, right? Because I, as you know, love, love chatting with you. Absolutely. And um, if people wanted to, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. So if people wanted to find you there, they should probably follow you because I actually think you answer questions beautifully. Um, where can they find you on Twitter? Oh, boy. Uh, at LJ hyphen tan. Fabulous. All right. Have a good day. Thank you, Karen. You too. Take care now. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you haven't gotten your COVID shot, go get that. If you need to get your flu shot at the same time, do both. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is PedsGeekMD, or you can find me elsewhere on the webs. And we want to thank Kevin, our editor, because if you're listening to this, you've had a much easier time listening than we have had recording, and Kevin has had editing. So if you get the chance to thank Kevin, please thank Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. His name is Kevin Kirk. And if you have any audio needs, Kevin's your guy. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin, and podcast out. To learn more, visit faxtalk.org.